well, see, the NCAA, I wish this is why we need an expanded playoff in football. Look, we're getting the expanded playoff. We already know that, okay? But the basketball tournament is not an indicator of why we need an expanded playoff. Stop trying to push that narrative. It's not a real thing. Hello and welcome in. It's Monday, the March 13th edition of Always College Football. I'm Greg McElroy, Mark Kubiak's along with me, Jack Foster, all the boys. We're having a great time. We really appreciate you being with us. Like, rate, subscribe. It helps us out. It helps the show out. We have a big show for you today. There's one of my pet peeves, and it's just every year. Every year, people are trying to draw similarities with college football and college basketball. Y'all, they could not be more different. So I'm going to tell you here in just a moment why it's utterly ridiculous when people start describing Cinderella's and start describing, oh, that's going to be so great in football. Yeah, but I'll explain why it's probably not going to happen the same way in football as it does in basketball. I'm also going to explain people, regardless of how big the playoff is, people are still going to complain because I'm people are mad that teams that are three games above 500 didn't make the field. Well, we'll discuss that in a minute. We also have spring previews for Georgia. We have spring previews for the state of Virginia, both Virginia and Virginia Tech. We're going to hit South Carolina. We're going to hit Arizona State. And then we're going to hit Penn State as well. So a lot of spring previews that we need to get to as well here on a Monday edition of Always College Football. We'll finish the show by hitting the mailbag like we always do. So we really appreciate you being with us. Let's not waste any more time. Let's talk about it. All right. Every year we sit here and we are so excited for Selection Sunday. I'm like you. I love college sports. Now, I'm naturally, I'm a little bit more of a college football fan than anything else. But I, I'm sure, look, even the most diehard college football fan even if you don't like hoops whatsoever, you're watching March Madness Thursday, just a couple of days from now. I think it is the best sporting day of the year. Doesn't matter what the circumstances are, that January 1st for bowl season, that's pretty much the two biggest days in my world. I also love the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. So, you know, if you want to break it down, there's a handful of others that might come into the mix. But no, I mean, to me, Thursday is about as good as it gets. But I'm always a little bit irritated when I get on Twitter or get on social media and I read articles and columns about, well, see, the NCAA, I wish this is why we need an expanded playoff in football. Look, we're getting the expanded playoff. We already know that, okay? But the basketball tournament is not an indicator of why we need an expanded playoff. Stop trying to push that narrative. It's not a real thing. The basketball tournament, we're sitting here and we rank teams 1 through 68, right? Well, these teams are going to Dayton for the play-in games on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then you got this team who, you know, Texas A&M, they're ranked 16th, 17th in the AP poll, and yet they're a seven seed. It's like, you realize that we have a 68-team field that could, by the way, expand even further in the future, and yet people are still complaining about who's in and who's out. Who's in and who's out? People are arguing on behalf of teams that are five games over 500, and they're like, I can't believe they were left out. Well, you know, they barely won half of their games. Like, why is it that we focus so much on the bubble? Why is it that we focus so much on the teams that are misseeded in your eyes, 
whether they are misseeded or not is I'm not really sure. I don't I don't know if Texas A and M's a seven seed. Like, do I think they should be? Probably not, but am I gonna lose a lot of sleep over it? No. Why? Because they control their own destiny. Well, it's harder for them as a seven seed. Tough. Do we are championships supposed to be easy? Like are the is that are you just supposed to just cakewalk your way to the final four and then cut down the nets when you get there? Like guess what? You gotta beat good teams to get there. I can already feel it coming. I'm just, I can feel it coming already. Whether we stay at 12, whether we go to 16, whether it ultimately ends up at 32, I don't know. I don't necessarily care the size of the college football playoff. But can we please, can we please not complain? Like everyone that wanted expansion, everybody that complained about four teams isn't enough. Four teams is going to totally... You know, now your teams aren't getting in because it's a brand bias and all this other nonsense, all the other reasons why these things, you know, didn't materialize up until now. All the reasons why everyone complained. Well, you, you got your wish. But a perfect example is the bracket that was released last night. It's got 68 names in it. And people are still complaining. Like, you got your expansion. You got... What I think is an unnecessary expansion, personally, there would have been things I would have done to the regular season before expanding the playoff to 12, but I lost. I punted on that battle, fought a good fight, lost. It's fine. I'm going to support the 12-team playoff. I'm excited about the 12-team playoff. I don't necessarily love how it's going to impact the regular season for many, but it is what it is. But we're going to complain about every single possibility when we get to a 12-team playoff because we just did it last night when it came to a 68-team playoff. So it's a long roundabout way of saying don't let people compare the college football postseason to March Madness because there's also one other thing that really irritates me. Everybody is going to continue to point to, well, look at St. Peter's. They were the example. St. Peter's last year, a 15 seed that almost made it to the Final Four. Everybody points to George Mason, you know, a 13 seed that made it to the Final Four. Everyone's pointed to teams that are 11 seeds. I believe it was Syracuse. It was an 11 seed that made it to the Final Four. That's awesome. Like, it's, it's great. But basically, what that means is that you were remarkably flawed and inconsistent. Syracuse, that is. More so than George Mason. More so than Butler. More so than Wichita State. More so than St. Peter's. Like Syracuse, getting to the Final Four means that you're flawed and that nobody knew how to play against your 2-3 zone. Like, simple as that. All right? Simple as that. But we can list... The Cinderella's just off of memory because they don't happen that often. Like those people that are saying, well, yeah, I mean, what would happen if, you know, San Diego State took on Georgia and beat them and then followed it up and took on Ohio State and beat them and then followed it up and beat Bama in the semifinals and then ultimately went on to win the national championship against Michigan. Yeah, what would happen? I mean, it would be an amazing story, but is it likely? Absolutely not. Like Cinderella's can happen in basketball way easier than they can happen in football. Why? Because it's, you know, 
five guys playing offense and defense at the same time. Like you only have 12 guys on a roster. You have one and done. So guys are in. So some talented freshmen can't necessarily play with the maturity level in a win or go home situation as a fourth year junior. So it's a little different. But the Cinderella storyline that we love in hoops is probably not going to happen as much in college football. You're going to say, Greg, we just saw it last year with TCU. Yeah, it was a great run. It was a phenomenal run. How did it end? <laughs> it didn't end well. So when you start to make the point about we should expand the playoff because look at the Cinderella stories that are going to come from this upcoming weekend, stop before you get ahead of yourself. Because you and I both know that St. Peter's, the St. Peter's version of college football, which I'm not sure exactly who that would be. I'll allow your imagination to run wild. Let's say Buffalo Bulls. The likelihood of them really making a crazy run to the semifinals is about 0.00001%. Just saying. So don't start to say when there's a team and that's ranked 13th, it's a 13th seed and they make it to the second weekend in a couple days. Don't start using that weekend's performance as an indicator of some Cinderella stories that are going to happen in college football. It's not going to happen. All right. The defending two-time national champion Georgia Bulldogs are officially on the clock. Spring practice getting underway here in just a moment. And it's an exciting one in Athens, Georgia. They're trying to win a three-peat in national champions. The last team to do so. No, it wasn't Alabama. No, it wasn't Nebraska in the 90s. No, it wasn't Miami at any point with their great runs, both in the late 80s or 2000s, what have you. The last time we saw a three-peat was in 1936, 1935, and 1934. Could you guess who it was? It was the Minnesota Golden Gophers. I bet you probably didn't assume that they were going to be rowing the boat towards a three-peat back in the day. All right? But either way, a lot that we needed to look at when it comes to the Georgia Bulldog roster. We're going to dive in a little bit deeper. It's kind of a spring primer. We will get a little deeper in the weeds about some of the positions that we'll be watching internally. But the biggest question for Georgia by a mile here heading into what is a pivotal spring is you have lost Stetson Bennett. And people are going to say, well, Stetson Bennett, you know, I, I mean, how talented was he? You know, was he really that good? All these, everyone that has an issue with Stetson Bennett, it's fine. Like everyone has their own right to be reluctant to say he's an all-time great. Whatever you want to say, I don't really necessarily care. I think he was a phenomenally productive player. And went on a ridiculous run the last two years in guiding Georgia to consecutive national championships. His legs will not be easily replaced because he was able to get out of jams and improvise and make plays. But man, Stetson Bennett was just a gamer. The guy knew how to get it done. And vying for that empty seat in the quarterback room are some pretty talented dudes. But their skill set is a little bit different from that of Stetson Bennett. You got redshirt junior Carson Beck, guy that's been around the program for a very long time. How often, by the way, have we seen a redshirt junior in a situation like this where they're getting ready to jump in? In this era, 
I mean, it feels like if you're not starting by your redshirt freshman year, if you redshirt, you're out. Well, Carson Beck decided to just put his head down, continue to work, knew he's going to get plenty of opportunities to play in mop-up time, thought maybe once or twice, maybe he gets a spot start here and there. Well, he's ready and now primed for the opportunity. I've seen him throw in person. It's a beautiful thing. The guy flat out spin it. And if you look at his size, look at his mobility, just his build, all that stuff, there's a lot to really like about his skill set. But he's going to be going up against some pretty talented guys that are also vying for the position. Brock Vandegrift was kind of in the position at one point to think he was going to be jumping and maybe even eclipsing what Carson Beck was. But I don't know. Watching him in the spring game last year, and granted, that was the spring game. He's a year younger. He's a little bit younger, obviously, than Carson Beck. He he isn't as well-versed in the system as Carson Beck is. He's been around for four years, now finally getting his opportunity. So when you look at where he's at, it's going to be very interesting, I think, to see how much of a competition is this really going to be. Like I, I know that they're not the only two. You got Stockton in there as well. There's plenty of guys and plenty of talent in that quarterback room. But I would be really surprised if it's not Carson Beck. I mean, Kirby Smart could tell me we're going to have a quarterback competition. We have all these guys. We're going to be spreading reps evenly. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to give this guy a look. We're going to give this guy a look. We're going to give this guy a medium opportunity. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, I believe him. I'm going to take him at his word. But I think this is Carson Beck's job to lose based on what I've seen. Granted, what I've seen, a couple of practices and a spring game or two over the last couple of years. So I think Carson Beck's in a really good position. But that's question number one. Can he lock it down this spring? Question number two, what's going on with the new offense? A lot of people sitting there saying, you know, I don't know about Mike Bobo. People saying, I think that Mike Bobo's got a chance to be, you know, Todd Monk in 2.0. I actually am in line with the folks that really like the hire. I think it makes perfect sense. Now, if your offense had struggled, if you hadn't won two consecutive championships, you need to kind of inject some life into that side of the ball. Sure, I can get on board with maybe going and interviewing and looking elsewhere, but man, you want to keep this train rolling. So I have no issues whatsoever with them promoting Mike Bobo from within. I think he has a good relationship probably already with the quarterbacks in the room. And I think the offense won't skip a beat, even though they lost what I think probably the most underappreciated coordinator in the entire sport in Todd Munkin, who's now going to be an offensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens. So how does Mike Bobo gel? And will there be tweaks to the offensive system? The final aspect, I think, is how do you break in a couple new pieces? Georgia has not been a team that's really gone after guys in the portal. That has not been something that they've prioritized. They have been a team that has really prioritized high school recruiting, development from within, and, you know, kind of seeing things play out as they go along. Well, not this year. You go out and get Rara Thomas from Mississippi State. You go out and get Dominic Lovett from Missouri. Two explosive wide receivers that could immediately help that passing attack. And I think this is going to be one heck of a passing attack, I might add. I think they might be more, actually more inclined to throw the ball over the yard here in 2023 than they were even in 2022. So it will be very interesting to see how those two guys work into an offense that's clearly going to be featured, featuring maybe the most versatile weapon in the game 
and Brock Bowers. So those are the three big questions that we have for Georgia, all of which I think will be answered potentially by the end of spring. All right, bold prediction. Georgia is a lock for the college football playoff, even with a loss because of their schedule. It's it's impossible to say lock. This is football. This is college football. The ball is oblong and takes weird hops when you roll it on the ground, right? I mean, have a couple unfortunate breaks. Next thing you know, you're on the outside looking in. So if I had to bet right now, hey, Greg, you have two sons. You got to take their college account and you got to bet one side or the other. Will Georgia make the college football playoff? Here, here's the 529 money right here. Pick a side. I'd put it on yes, but there are no locks. So to assume right now, even with their schedule, to assume right now that they should just punch their ticket and start booking flights to whatever the semifinal venues are next year, uh, I would wait a little bit as of right now because football's tough. And even sometimes when the teams have crazy expectations and everyone's anticipating them just rolling right along, punching their tickets to the national championship, We've seen teams with significant edges like that stumble at times in years past. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sports book of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Keeping it in the SEC, going up north just a little bit. Georgia obviously looks at South Carolina, and those two have gone toe-to-toe in several different games that are really competitive over the last decade. Maybe it will be again this year because South Carolina is starting spring this week, and let's think about this. Tell me a team in the final couple weeks of the regular season that was playing better. Just the final couple weeks of the regular season. Tell me a team that improved the optics of their season more in the final two weeks of the regular season. Like went from being a, uh, not a bad year to what a great year. We beat Clemson. We did this against Tennessee. Like it was a big, big turnaround as a result. Shane Beamer has cashed in rightfully so and deservingly so. And he is now being tasked with making some changes with his team here in the spring. New coordinators abound. Very interested in seeing how Dowell Logans does at South Carolina. A lot of people don't know Dowell Logans. I've actually been fortunate enough to get to know him over the years. Our time dates all the way back to when I was in the league. I was with the Jets. He was with the Titans. We had a great relationship Mutual friends connected us, and we've hit it off ever since. So I will admit, I am a Dow Logans fan. I think he's really good. 
But I also think there aren't that many people that are super familiar with his offensive philosophy. You know who's also not familiar? The South Carolina Gamecocks. So it's going to be very important for him to install that offense to get things running. Because there was last year, for as talented as Spencer Rattler is, we all know that he's a really talented young man that is probably going to play on Sundays, even though last year was a significant roller coaster ride. He never really looked comfortable, at least early in the season. Part of that, according to the people you talk to, maybe he wasn't super comfortable with the offense. So now, knowing that that was a challenge last year, Dow Logans has to make sure his quarterback and gunslinger is really comfortable from start to finish. That starts in the spring. That is number one. Number two, you got some things to figure out along the defensive front seven, okay? You lose a couple of really good edge pieces to the portal. You lose Jordan Birch. You lose Gilbert Edmond. Both went to the portal, which means you're going to have to step up some collection of Jordan Strawn, who was supposed to be, you know, the guy that's going to be the edge presence that was going to take this defense to the next level. You got Brian Thomas, Terrell Dawkins, Tyreek Johnson, those guys along the defensive front, they're going to have to definitely make their presence felt. The good news is you've obviously figured out <laughs> they're pretty good at recruiting and they went out and got what could be a day one impact player as a starter in Nicholas Harbor. So it'll be interesting, I think, to see whether or not he's the guy as a freshman that could come in. He might play tight end. He's got unbelievable speed. The guy ran 10-3 in the 100. But either way, he might be defensive end as well. So how does he factor in the defensive end spot probably of the utmost importance defensively, I think, for the South Carolina Gamecocks? Continuing to navigate just a little bit further north, let's get to the Commonwealth. We're going to hit both Virginia and Virginia Tech, and we're going to do so quickly. Last year... Virginia obviously experienced some heartbreak at the end of the season. He had a tragedy in which former teammate, we all know the details of what went down. It's really, really heartbreaking. Really, really is. So it was one of those situations where Tony Elliott at that point, I think was able to, I'm not saying he was necessarily able to mend the challenge, the, the heartbreak and tragic, tragic feelings of the locker room. But I do think the team potentially grew closer together as a result of that incident. Now it's going to be very interesting to see what they do offensively because they're obviously in a bit of transition. You lose the offensive player that you've leaned most heavily on in Brennan Armstrong. He's now going to be playing for the NC State Wolfpack. So you got a quarterback competition that you're going to have to figure out. And if you look at last year, Virginia's offense... There were times in which Brennan Armstrong, and we all know he's a very talented player, he never looked comfortable, man. It just looked like they weren't on the same page. Tony Elliott would call the play, never looked like it was really being run with great efficiency by anyone involved with the Virginia offense. They got to get that side of the ball playing better. And you look at Tony Elliott, he went to the portal. He went out and got Kobe Pace, who's a transfer from Clemson that, Clearly, Tony Elliott's very familiar with. Now, will he be the Virginia edition of, say, Will Shipley? You got to think that Pace is probably going to be a guy they completely feature the offense around. New quarterback that they're going to be breaking in. 
So I think that it's going to be really interesting to get that offense back on track. The defense played better at times last year than they did in previous seasons. Now it's the offense's turn to take a step. And who are they going to lean on to do that? Probably going to be Kobe Pace. Going to be interesting to watch. Let's go to Blacksburg just a little bit further away there from Virginia. As you look at what was year one for Brent Pry, it was really just a, it was a grind. You could just tell there was some learning on the job. The good news is they had a couple of guys that turned over with their coaching staff. You go out and you, now you got to get Grant Wells at quarterback and he got to develop him. That's going to be significant because if the, he, if this group is going to, contend for the postseason and that should be the bare minimum expectation for Virginia Tech on an annual basis you got to get your quarterback playing well hopefully Grant Wells can be that guy we're talking about a team that finished 13th in the ACC in rushing yards as well so we're going to talk about the quarterback but my goodness they got to get a little bit more out of the offensive line and they got to get a little bit more out of the running back spot. The good news is they have a couple of promising pieces that you might be able to rely on. You got Brayshul Tootin, who's an incoming transfer that should be an adequate piece that should add to that backfield depth. And you also have Malachi Thomas. So a couple of guys that should improve that room, but the offensive line really has to come together. And if there's one thing we know, it's not necessarily guarantee that that group is going to do significant things. On the perimeter, not to make things a little bit better, look, there was one guy that you felt like they could take over the game last year, and that was Caleb Smith. Well, unfortunately, he's now off to Notre Dame. Big for him, very happy for him, but that's a pretty significant absence on the outside for the Hokies passing attack. So what did they do? They went and played against Old Dominion last year. Well, that guy right there, Ollie Jennings, pretty good player. Let's bring him to Blacksburg, and he can be the guy that can hopefully fill the void that's going to be felt from Caleb Smith's absence. He was really good last year for Old Dominion. Went for 959 yards on 54 catches. He's got good length and should be a guy that they can hang their hat on as he steps up in week-to-week -week competition. All right, moving out west now, preview Arizona State. What a big off-season addition Kenny Dillingham was. I guess we say addition. I mean, he was the guy, man. I mean, this is a polar opposite, though. When you think of the process that they went through to hire Herm Edwards, Kenny Dillingham could not be more the opposite of Herm Edwards. You got older, you know, guy that had been around, go all the way to make making Kenny Dillingham the youngest head coach in college football. <laughs> so these guys could not be any more different. You got DB coach, offensive mind. It's like totally the opposite. Either way, Kenny Dillingham got the job because he's going to produce a lot of excitement offensively. Let's just be honest. Like, do we know if you could tell me right now what he's going to be looking like defensively or what their philosophy is going to be defensively? There's no way you could tell me that. Like, there's absolutely no way you could tell me, you know what? Yeah, this is what Arizona State's defense is going to look like this year. I don't know that, but I can tell you this their offense is going to be exciting. They're going to have an awful lot 
of things that are going to be very, very exciting to watch. They're going to run some tempo. They're going to spread the field both horizontally and vertically. And hopefully the newcomer, Drew Pine from Notre Dame, he'll feel very comfortable within the offense. You look at what happened with Bo Nix last year. Bo Nix had an up and down tenure at Auburn, goes to Oregon, and look at what Kenny Dillingham turned him into, one of the most productive passers in the Pac-12. Drew Pine, up and down career so far up to this point at Notre Dame. He's going to go, obviously, and play in a quarterback-friendly offense that might accelerate his ability as well. He, along with Jaden Rashada, who remember Jaden Rashada, a lot of people know him because of the controversial recruitment at Florida and the NIL issue and him, this amount of money was agreed to, but he's not really getting paid for and he's going to leave and he wants out of his NIL and NLI and all this. Well, Jaden Rashada is at Arizona State and he's obviously going to be in a position to compete for the starting job immediately. Who's it going to be? You got to think it's going to be Pine initially. We'll see where Rashad is. According to people that are familiar with where he's at developmentally, it'd be in his best interest to take some time, maybe not start the season as a starter, take some time as a backup, get bigger, get stronger, get more physically mature to be able to stand in the pocket and face some of the grown men that he'll be facing on a week-to-week basis at the highest level of college football. So I think Jaden Rashada could ultimately, in time, become the starting quarterback, but I would be surprised if Pine isn't the guy day one. That competition, though, is something that we will be keeping a close eye on, not just throughout the course of the spring, but I think this is going to be one that goes deep into fall camp and ultimately might not even be decided until the season gets underway. All right, Penn State Nittany Lions putting a bow on things here. With our spring previews, knowing that Penn State is a team that I am very optimistic about coming in to the 2023 season. Let's look at what they bring back. We know they have a young core. Like that's been that's been established. We feel great about what they have in the run game. Katron Allen, Nicholas Singleton. How will you continue to get those guys utilized in an offense that might look maybe a little bit different here? in this upcoming season. Now, is it going to look different as far as scheme? Not necessarily, but the quarterback position, Drew Aller taking over for the departed Sean Clifford. Drew Aller, his skill set is a little bit different from that of Sean Clifford. Drew Aller, not quite as mobile, big lumbering frame with a massive arm. He can push the ball down the field. And I think having a tandem of running backs with that type of ability. I can just to make the assumption right now, this is going to be a hardcore rushing attack with a heavy play action emphasis. That's just my assumption. Fake it to them. Nine step drop, throw it 75 yards down the field, strike up the fight song. That's my assumption. Now I don't know that for sure, but that's the assumption that I'm having right now. I want to see drew Aller. We've heard for years just how good this guy is. Remember, he was the second highest rated quarterback in the 2022 class. He was the really one of the biggest quarterback recruits that James Franklin has, has brought in since he was at Penn State. How quickly 
can he become the guy that he was always meant to become? Now, he's got to be the guy that can elevate the program. Clifford was good. I think Clifford was in some ways underappreciated, but he did have his moments in which you're just left scratching your head. Now, I thought he played really well for the most part all of last season. Aller, I never felt like when I saw him get on the field, I never felt like he was quite ready to be the guy last year. Doesn't mean he won't be ready to take that step this year. Now, will he have to completely shoulder the load? That's what I want to find out. And if he has to, can he do it? You know you have those running backs. You know you're in a really good spot. But either way, you should be in a great spot. And you got Olu Fashanu. Maybe one of the best tackles in the entire country is going to be blocking his backside. So that's a pretty good place to start. Offensive line should be improved, knowing that you have a great player that came back and a couple of key pieces that return along the interior. You have two excellent running backs. Receiver last year, good. Not one that I'm going to be super concerned about in any departure. Tight ends last year, Probably the undeniable strength of the team as far as their weapons were concerned in the passing game. Going to be very interesting to see how they get on the same page with Drew Aller as he continues to progress because nobody is more beneficial to a young quarterback's development than a solid and reliable uh, tight end core. And then you got some pretty good offensive identities that have already been established. One thing to keep an eye on we already mentioned the two running backs, okay? We know about Nicholas Singleton. We know about Katron Allen. We know those guys can take over the game. But don't sleep based on what I'm hearing. Do not sleep on Landon Montgomery because this guy is the third ESPN 300 running back that Penn State signed in the last couple of years. If for whatever reason, Singleton and or Allen gets a little banged up at any point, this could be a guy that steps right in and becomes an immediate difference maker at running back. So this two-headed monster at running back might ultimately, by the time the season comes around, it might ultimately be a three-headed monster. So it'll be really interesting if they get in that bone formation. Did those three running backs line up right behind Drew Aller? It'd be pretty cool if they did. I think it's a safe bet that we'll see that at some point in the 2023 fall campaign. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be. All right, moving on to our mailbag. We love when you guys continue to send us these unbelievable questions. We're stockpiling them, and we will continue to just check them off a little at a time, a couple every show. It's been fun to interact. Continue to send us those mailbag questions at alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com, or you can also submit them on our social media sites. We got Always CFB on both Instagram and on Twitter. So, Coops, what do we got today? All right. First one comes from Kevin in Tennessee. Curious about your thoughts on who will be the three permanent opponents for Tennessee with the addition of Texas and Oklahoma in 2024. What will the preference for preserving the rivalries of Tennessee versus Vandy versus Bama versus Florida versus Kentucky? 
Well, based on the information that we have available to us right now, there is a pool, if you will, of of how this whole thing, and we'll spend a whole episode on this here in a couple months, okay? This is summertime gold. So you just come back and check on us here in June. We will break this thing down its entirety. I'll tell you exactly why these decisions were made. Some of the people I talked to, I know the specifics of why these decisions were made. So we have tons of time to be able to unpack some of this stuff down the road. But Tennessee's permanent opponents, look at their win percentage the last 10 years. Right now, it's not very good. Last 10 years. Okay, I'm not saying Tennessee's not good. I'm saying that Tennessee's win percentage the last 10 years has not been good. So they're going to be way on down the list as far as the quality of opponent that they're going to have to play permanently. So, for instance, if you're Alabama, Nick Saban's already on the record. You've had the highest win percentage the last 10 years. Well, guess what? You're going to have one of the toughest draws. You're going to have LSU, you're going to have Auburn, and you're going to have Tennessee. Well, if you are on the lower end of the spectrum, you're going to get one of the easier draws. So it's appearing right now, based on reports, that Tennessee is going to have South Carolina. They're going to have Alabama, which, of course, is one of their tougher games. And then they're also going to have Vandy, which is obviously they had the lowest win percentage of anybody in the SEC. So I think there is a balance you're going to have to punt on some rivalries for sure. It's unfortunate that Tennessee and Kentucky won't be able to play against each other. But either way, I think preserving the biggest games should be the highest priority for the SEC. That's something that we can continue to discuss, though, down the road. And I'll tell you what some of those, quote, biggest games might be as we look forward into some of our summer previews. All right. This next question comes from Jim in Alabama. Around the same topic here. There are a lot of reports out there about permanent SEC opponents. If all are true, who got the toughest draw and who made out? The toughest draw is Auburn. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt. Auburn has to play the two teams with the highest win percentage in the entire SEC. Unfortunately for them, I just talked about preserving big games. You got Alabama and you got Georgia. Now, they make things a little bit easier by giving you Vandy to help balance things out. But Auburn, of course, in the last 10 years has had a really high win percentage as well. They'd be an upper tier team, but they have to play against two uppers and they have to get one that's down on the bottom. That's why you get Vandy. So play the two toughest teams, it's brutal. <laughs> Absolutely brutal. I think second most difficult would be Alabama. Alabama having Auburn, in-state rival, difficult game. I don't need to explain that. Having Tennessee, a team that, yeah, right now on win percentages, way on down the list, but clearly heading in the right direction under Josh Heupel and co. And then you get LSU, who's been one of the toughest, probably one of the toughest teams for Alabama in the last 15 years. I mean, I'm not sure what LSU's record is against Alabama, but dating back to, say, 2007 or six, let's say seven since Nick Saban got there, that's probably been one of the most challenging opponents that Nick Saban and company have faced. So those probably, if if Auburn's not number one because they have Bama and Georgia, then it'd probably be Bama at number one because they have Auburn, Tennessee, and LSU. All right, final thoughts here. Josh Gaddis has officially found a new home. He's going to work 
with Mike Loxley, going to be the offensive coordinator and quarterback coach for the Maryland Terrapins. Now, why is this interesting? All you got to do is just Google. You guys can do this. All you got to do is just Google Mike Loxley, Josh Gaddis, and you're going to find some interesting articles. Saturday Down South actually has maybe the most interesting article because there is a there's some quotes from Mike Loxley about Josh Gaddis and vice versa from back in 2018. These guys, for whatever reason, ironed things out, though, man, because they are going to be working together yet again. They didn't necessarily see eye to eye back in the day, but clearly they found a common ground. I'll say this. I think Josh Gaddis is a heck of a coach. Like What happened at Miami last year, to me, does not change my impressions of whether or not the guy can coach ball. Like Sometimes there's just bad fits. Sometimes it's just difficult circumstances. Sometimes the guy that you're expected to groom doesn't necessarily fit great in your offensive scheme. That's, I think, what happened last year. Tyler Van Dyke and Josh Gaddis, it was oil and water. It's not the only place that's happened. Tony Elliott at Virginia, Brennan Armstrong never looked worse than he did at times last year running Tony Elliott's offense. Tony Elliott, still a really good coach, still scored a million points when he was the OC at Clemson. So these guys just didn't start taking crazy pills. Like No, it just didn't work out. So it's nice to know that Josh Gaddis is going to be going back, working under Mike Loxley, who will delegate all the offensive responsibility to him, and he gets to work with a veteran quarterback in Talia Tungavailoa that is going to be familiar with their style of attack. And I think it's going to be a really nice fit for Josh Gaddis. And I think it's a great addition for Mike Loxley. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It helps the show out. We will continue to churn out content. A lot of shows that we need to get to. Still a ton of teams that we haven't had a chance to talk about here in some of our spring football previews. We're going to get some big picture topics a la the permanent opponents for the SEC down the road. We'll get there, but not today. It's not the time. It's spring football time. We'll get to those topics when the summer rolls around. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Jack Foster and Mark Kubiak, I'm Greg McElroy. Hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.